Hello, Brad here. Just to say we're super proud that the Friday 5pm podcast is sponsored by the Malt Miller, the UK's best home brew store. We use the Malt Miller for all of our homebrew experiments, as well as tapping them up for advice and binging on their awesome YouTube channel all the time. That's why whenever we release a homebrew video, we put a recipe kit live on the Malt Miller, so you can brew with the exact same amazing ingredients that we did. The same ingredients used by pro brewers. So alongside the Malt Miller's nitro-flushed hops, cold-stored yeast and milled-to-order malts, you can pick up recipe kits for our Five Points Best Bitter, Russian River West Coast IPA, and now the fastest beer in the world, a hazy session IPA that goes from grain to glass in less than 48 hours. Sign up to their newsletter at tinyurl.com forward slash maltmiller to get 5% off your first order. With the Malt Miller's amazing customer service and Johnny's 48-hour recipe, you could order the ingredients on a Monday and be drinking the beer by the weekend. Speaking of which, it's Friday. It's 5pm. So enjoy this week's Friday 5pm podcast. Hey, Beagings, and welcome back to the bubble. Yes, a slightly delayed bubble. Um, there's a lot going on at the moment, isn't there, Johnny? There's uh, some news. Some news I've heard. It's, it's best just to avoid the news, um, but thanks to the wonders of technology, we have managed to remain socially isolated but um, link up with the wonderful Pete Brown. Yeah, so Pete Brown is, to be honest, one of the reasons I got into beer. I read his book, uh, Man Walks Into a Pub, um, probably about a decade ago and absolutely loved it, having always been a, a, a real ale and, and a Guinness fan, which is a brand we talk about today. Um, but the main reason we wanted to talk to him uh, is because of his history as, as, as an ad man, as a madman. Yeah, he's a bit of a modern-day uh, Don Draper, uh, but only less whiskey. You may notice my absence in this uh, episode, listeners. This is due to the wonders of technology. So I, I was listening in, but my microphone was not playing ball. So um, we've managed to, to edit me out. Um, so my input was minimal, and I got to listen along. But I was really fascinated listening to Pete in this one. Um I love sort of old school advertising um, and it was something that I was a little bit involved in in a previous life. So listening to him talk about um, brands like Stella and Guinness, um, things that really resonate in my, from my growing up watching telly and seeing these amazing ads, I just find super interesting. Yeah, I think we can agree that the, the adverts that were put out, particularly in the 90s and early 2000s, before that whole lad culture kind of took over the beer market, we were producing much better adverts than we were beer. Yes, very much. So like Guinness ads especially, they still I still remember all of them. Uh, there's the Dancing Man, the Horses. There's so many of these really, really iconic ads that just live with you. And if you're lucky enough to be a Northern Irish listener, you may remember a very strange harp ad um, from around the early 90s. Uh, and it had... Lawrence of Arabia coming in on a on a sort of cartoon camel and said, "I'll have a pen of heart on a packet of dates, please." Um, so we'll we'll put a link in the uh, in the the bio for that ad because it's definitely worth a, a watch. Yeah, so the creativity went out of beer before it did out of the adverts, um, and Pete was involved in lots of very famous campaigns for Stella Artois um, back in the day before he sort of fell in love with beer writing um, and then off the back of that fell in love with craft beer as that movement happened. So we have a good chat with him about uh, the campaigns he was involved in, why beer advertising went so incredibly wrong um, and now what we can learn, A, from what craft brewers are doing, what the big guys can learn from what craft beer is doing um, and perhaps where it might be headed to some extent um, and where the budgets that were previously ploughed into cinematic epic adverts go now. So, without further ado, over to Pete Brown talking about advertising and beer. A yeast infection. Shin, 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 Yeast infection. Shin, 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 shin
Yeah, so Pete, we'll, we'll get to what you do as a beer writer and that kind of stuff, I'm sure, towards uh, towards the middle and end of the podcast. But uh, I wanted to start by talking about your your previous life. Yes. Um, as as a, a corporate media, um, was it, I've already forgotten what the job title was, strategic planner. Yes, in an advertising agency. Yeah. So tell me what a strategic planner is and what you what you did for that advertising agency. Uh, the short the short answer is that I I helped make adverts for Stella Artois and Heineken, and uh, and that's why I'm here today. Um, but uh, what a planner does is uh, if, if you want to if you want the creative guys to write a really good ad, then you have to give them focus. And uh, and what a planner does is give them one sheet of paper. Uh, which says this is who we're talking to. This is the one single message the ad has got to say. This is why people should believe it, and this is the kind of tone of voice we're thinking of. And a creative works off that and comes up with uh, a, a thirty-second work of art on the back of it. Um, but to get to that bit, you've got to do you've got to boil down everything you know about the brand, the market trends, the consumer, any insights you've got into why people think the way they do, shop the way they do, all that kind of stuff. And boil that down into into that one sheet of paper and everything that happens, and then you've got to research the ad and make sure it works. And if it hasn't worked, figure out why. And if it has worked, uh, figure out the same thing and do it again. Uh, and people are very strange. People are weird. People don't do the things they say they do. They don't even do the things that they think they do. So it's kind of like bringing applied psychology uh, into a commercial process and uh, playing with people's minds uh, in return for making lots of money. <laughs> and so how did you fall into that it was it was beer that made me want a job in advertising so i was uh, a teenager i became of legal drinking age in the mid 80s and and beer ads were the best thing on telly at the time um uh a lot of the kind of alternative comedians hadn't gone to tv yet there was kind of fairly shit sitcoms and and beer ads were these little 30 second uh branded jokes basically and sometimes they were genius and sometimes they had really great production values and stuff um because you couldn't talk about the effects of beer you couldn't talk about the reasons why people drink beer so you had to and all the whole lag is all tasted the same anyway and so it was about building brands based on uh, affinity you know and if you made the funniest ad you got you got the best um audience basically and so i thought when i was at university uh, and everyone was saying right your next step is to be an accountant um and my then girlfriend got some forms and I was like, what, you mean I can actually get a job making those ads? So uh, uh, I applied to it late in the day and uh, it took me about six years then to home in on a job where I was uh, where I was making beer ads. And that set me on the path to becoming uh, a writer. So t- tell me, before we get onto the writing, tell me what the ads, have you, can you remember some of the ads that got you, got you inspired from when you were 14? My favourite one of all time, and... I met the bloke who wrote it, and I, I went complete fanboy on him. He didn't know what had hit him. Um, uh, there's an old Cowling Black Label ad of Dan Busters, and uh, the the Blancaster bombers are coming in over the over the dam. It's shot like a black and white war movie, and they drop a bouncing bomb onto the water, and it skips across the water. And there's a lone German sentry, um, and he takes off his uh, overcoat and drops his rifle, and he saves the bouncing bomb like he's a goalkeeper. And throws it back into the water, and then they, then they drop like ten bouncing bombs at a time, um, and they all uh, he saves them all. Uh, and then uh, one of the guys takes his, one of the pilots takes his mask off and goes, "I bet he drinks Cowling Black Label." And that's the you know that was the the gag, the punchline at the end of each of each ad, really. Uh, and then the, the little extra gag at the end is you know the the distortion that people pilots get when they're wearing those oxygen masks in war films it's like, so the guy takes his mask off and says something and he still talks like that and it's just a perfectly <laughs> perfectly executed little gag the thing about writing an ad is every single frame is is considered and obsessed over and that ad just didn't put a foot wrong uh might be a bit dated now but it was just at the time it was just like yeah that's a brilliant joke and i never get tired of watching it I was going to say the Portman Group wouldn't be happy with the use of bombs in any kind of beer advertising now. Well, this is a thing now. I mean, around the time that I um, around the time that I was working on, on ads, um, well, it wasn't the Portman Group. It was the I think it's now called Clearcast. It changed its name every time. But it's, it's a different authority that looks at um, 
uh, that looks at TV and radio advertising. And in 97, 98, they really tightened the rules up. So before then, you could use allegory. You know, it's like we're not seriously saying that if you drink Cowling Black Label, you can catch massive bombs and stop them from going off. But then in about 97, 98, they tightened the rules to say, no, you are saying that. There's no such thing as hyperbole and allegory and things like that. If you're saying, if you're showing a man uh, in a beer ad uh, performing superhuman feats, you are claiming that this beer will make you perform superhuman feats. So it just got really stupid. And that was overnight the, the death of those great funny beer ads. Do you remember what led to that? Just, it was, it was the same time as, um, it was when the word it, it was when the term binge drinking. Uh, it was when binge drinking became the moral panic of the age. Um, I, I was writing. I did some research. There's a database of newspapers called LexisNexis, um, and I can't remember the exact numbers. But a few years later, I did some research on it, and the, the words binge drinking were mentioned in the Times. Uh, I think three times between 1785, when the Times was first published, and 1995. And then I think in the year 1998, the term binge drinking was in the Times 380 times in one year. Um, so more than once a day. Yes. So so there was this, just this moral panic around. Uh, you know, a few years before that, it was ravers and travellers and things like that. A few years after that, you know, a few years later, it's like asylum seekers. You know, there's always this kind of group of people who are uh, going to destroy society. And around that time, it was people who drank lager. So I'm a huge fan of Mad Men, the TV show. Yeah. Um, and a huge part of one of the seasons is around uh, the the ad men battling with the fact that cigarettes are basically being shut down. Yeah. Um, and they, they can't make any claims about it. They can't really advertise it at any point. Was, was that how it hit felt that wherever you turned at that point there was no way to advertise and you had to get cleverer yeah it wasn't um it wasn't quite to the extent of cigarettes and it's still not um but it was i mean you know when when that kind of noose is tightening around advertising you know from the 70s to the 90s it actually inspired creativity it's like okay you could only you, could, you can't mention this you can't mention this you can't mention this and you still got to somehow make this look appealing and so it actually is a huge boost to someone's creativity to make them jump through those hoops. But then it, when it just got a lot tighter, there was nothing you could do apart from show a pack shot. You know, in, 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 in France, I think you're not allowed to have people in a beer ad now. And uh, so the, the, the industry is always we, – we, we, we used to talk about it in terms of going black or going dark. Um, the, the idea that you just can't say anything. Um, and, yeah, the, the beer industry has been planning uh, on that for uh, for 20 years now. So how did you start to produce these, I guess, these sort of these pitches uh, for the creatives? Was it uh, investigations that you were doing? Was it uh, other companies that you were buying data from? Was it a bit of everything? It was a bit of everything. And, I mean, it was, it was just such a brilliant job. It, it really was when it when it went well. So the, the client gives you a brief. You know, the client says, right, we've, we've had our marketing budget signed off for the next 12 months, and we want to make a TV ad that we want to run in March and June and then put any money we've got left into a pre-Christmas burst. And you go, okay, fair enough, we're making a TV ad. And you say, right, so what what's... What should we should we kind of go with the same message we did last time? What's changed since the last ad? Uh, looking at market data, are more people drinking? Are less people drinking? Um, analyzing drinkers, you know, it's like what are their behaviors? What do they look for in a beer brand? Um, all that kind of stuff. Looking at data on how did the last ad perform? Uh, competitive reviews, what's everybody else doing? What's the big stuff in the market? Um, so you go into a huge amount of depth and detail and you buy market data off other com companies. You can use professional uh, researchers to do focus groups, but I, I was a trained focus group moderator as well, so I would uh, uh, I would sometimes do them myself. Um, and then there's a bit that I used to love of just kind of mining the data just to see where it told you. Um, you know, graphing it in different ways, uh, running different. Um, different statistics against each other you know you you, you you do a graph with something like well here's what b cells did here's when we ran our ads so you can see a spike uh there but this spike's really bigger oh if we put temperature onto this graph we can see that that bigger spike was due uh, to a heat wave and so you're always kind of looking stuff like that my favorite thing was there's a database called tgi and 
people fill out a questionnaire that's like 100 pages long that asks everything you can think of. And then you can cross-reference every answer they give. And so you can find out that Volvo drivers are more likely to eat Wall's sausages than Audi drivers. Or you can find out that Sun readers um, uh, are more likely to holiday in the Algarve, whereas Guardian readers are more likely to holiday uh, in Benidorm, or, or things like that. As you get some quite interesting little matchups and find stuff out that's counterintuitive. Uh, I'd lose myself in that kind of thing for days. This summer, I'm going to be hosting talks at the Manchester, Bristol and London Craft Beer Festivals, giving festival goers the chance to attend tutored tastings, rare beer pours, meet the brewers and even guided tours of the bars. These three festivals are the highlights of my events calendar, featuring some of the world's best breweries with delicious restaurant pop-ups, great music and a really welcoming party atmosphere. It's the third year I've been hosting the We Are Beer Tastings table, but for the first time I'm delighted to offer all of our listeners, viewers and Patreons £5 off a ticket when you use the code CBC5. Just hit the link in the description to buy. See you there. So I'm really interested to know what campaigns you you worked on and what the the impetus was for those campaigns. So what did you do for Stellar Artois? Um, so that I, I, that was kind of the easiest job in the world because at the time Stella was growing by about thirty percent year on year. Um, do you remember the the Jean de Florette style ads that were set in Provence and they were really cinematic and they were just doing brilliantly. We spent half the amount of money that Budweiser did. And we had twice the advertising awareness that Budweiser had. So these ads were really cutting through. And they made they made drinkers feel like they were cleverer. Uh, it's almost impossible to imagine that. My, my very last day on the job was the first day I ever heard the term wife beater. Um, and up, up to that point, people really thought Stella was a premium lager. And it wasn't a bad lager, actually, at one point. Um, uh, but I worked on an ad called Last Orders, um, which has got uh, a dying father making his last requests. And he asks his son to go and get him some honey. So the son goes and uh, gets some honey out of, an, out of a hive and he wants some some blossom from a tree. So he, he climbs up the tree to get that. And he brings a blossom back and the dad, and there's all these relatives crowding around waiting for the end. And then the dying father kind of gasps out, une stella à toi. And so this, everyone has to put all their money together, every single penny they've got. And he buys, he goes and buys a pint of Stella, gets a lift back on a, on a van and then gives it to temptation and drinks it, uh, returns home with an empty glass and then tries to blame it on the vicar who's performing last rites. And then the dad jumps up at the end and he wasn't ill at all. <laughs> it, it, it's wow, better. a real twist at the end. Yes, it's better when you see it than when I'm describing it. <laughs> you can see it on YouTube. And it, and it just, it was, it was, it looked beautiful. It was shot by Jonathan Glazer, who um, went on to make some really brilliant films. The guy who did Sexy Beast. Hmm. And, um, What's that Scarlett Johansson one where she's the alien serial killer? He shot that as well. Um, but so it was kind of proper cinematic directors, and it was great getting to work with those guys and stuff. Um, and then you just... it's interesting because these days, so firstly, reassuringly expensive was bold. Anyway, I can't remember the last campaign I saw where it said like this is expensive. Like yeah. usually we're we're sort of in discount boost territory. But the other thing is. Those kind of adverts are not used in alcohol anymore, except for Peroni, yes. which is still having huge success. Oh, at, at first, at first, Peroni was just copying Stellar ads. We we won uh, the, the the kind of Oscars of the advertising world are the, are the Cannes Awards, uh, as in South of France. And uh, one campaign I worked on was a um, it won the Grand Prix for print advertising at Cannes that year um and it was a bunch of luxury premium objects like a, a vintage uh Gibson guitar uh, an Eames chair um uh, a, a luxury sports car which had all got big scratches down them um and and a, and a bent uh, Stella bottle cap at the bottom so people had been using the most expensive things they could find to kind of open their Stella bottles on so it's really <laughs> One of those really, you had to look at it and figure out what was going on. They looked fantastic, um, and and we won we won amazing uh, prizes for it. and And it was all about setting up this beer as being so expensive, uh, so desired that people would do anything 
to get hold of it. That was the point. And then Stella reached a certain size in the market, and they said, right, balls to that. Uh, let's now go as big as we can. Forget the expensive thing. Forget the premium thing. Forget the quality thing. Let's just get as many drinks as we can. And the first ads I remember for Peroni just blatantly nicked that campaign that I was talking about. They just had Italian-style icons in them. They even looked. They even shot the same as Stella. And Stella just let them do it. Stella just let them take that position as the, the super premium lager in the mainstream lager market. It's It was a disaster. So obviously, Stella Artois and you were using uh, the, the price to premiumize this. Now we don't necessarily use price in the craft beer world. We're more using scarcity. Yeah. But is, is there anything that, that smaller producers, craft beer producers, could learn from the advertising that was going on while you were in that world? Um, I think it's the other way around, to be honest. Um, I, th- I think that big brands can learn from uh, how, how smaller brands have, I mean, you know, to some extent, I hope they don't. Um, but, you know, smaller brands have used what they've got. They haven't got the multi-million pound budgets or anything like that. But what they do have is this kind of nimbleness, uh, this agility that big brands don't have. So a stellar ad would take us between 18 months and two years to make um, just because it had to be so carefully researched and discussed and debated at every single point. You know, you, you, sometimes you'd watch a rough cut of a commercial 20 or 30 times a day uh, in, in kind of agonizing over every single frame, like I said. Um, and the way that craft beer moves, I, I think, I think the, the thing I – kind of one of my pet phrases at the moment is that craft beer is now the biggest uh, sort of thing. It's, it's driving global beer volume overall. Uh, and it happened without the permission of these vast, gigantic corporations. Um, so, I think, I think it's the other way around. Yeah, I think, I think, I think it's that the big guys can learn from the craft guys. We we recently did a podcast with the former fashion editor of GQ, um, in which we kind of asked a similar question, and, and he gave the same answer, which is that you know the the, the big fashion houses have started employing um, the people who are responsible for the success of these these streetwear yeah. brands. Um, obviously, it's a bit more difficult because uh, they'd have to employ both the, the the marketing teams and probably the production teams to get the same um, effects, although increasingly that's getting less likely. I'm sure Camden and Heineken, uh, Camden and uh, Beavertown, that's awkward, uh, sort of hoovering up these um, yes. these creatives as well. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I, I still do a lot of consultancy work with the big guys. Uh, well, not as much as I would like, to be honest, but... Uh, <laughs> um, it's interesting how it's changing. Craft is changing the very fabric of, of those organizations. So when I was working on Stella and Heineken, my my clients, if you like, the, the brand managers, um, the people responsible for working with the agency, um, they would be career marketers. Uh, so, you know, they would have started at Proch & Gamble working on uh, soap. Uh, they'd, be, they'd have gone to Coca-Cola. They'd be spending three years as a brand manager on Stellar or whatever, then their next job would be uh, marketing director of Whole Foods or Pet Food or, or something like that. You know, they, they weren't into beer um, and they 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 didn't know about beer and they didn't want to know about beer. They weren't interested in the product. Most of them didn't drink beer. Um, and that was one of the things that enraged me was you could work on beer not knowing anything about it. When I worked on financial services, I had to learn how mortgages and pensions worked inside out. And when I work with people like, say, Guinness these days, um, and I meet people in the same positions, and they're mad, passionate craft beer fans, and they were craft beer fans before they joined Guinness. So the big companies have now got people who actually give a shit about beer working for them, which which may not be good news for, for smaller brewers in terms of how they can compete. But overall, I think it's you – know, I always think when I'm thinking about the business side of things and the marketing side of things – I always have kind of two answers in my head, like as as a consumer and and as a industry pundit. Well, three answers: an industry pundit, a consumer, uh, and a passionate supporter of of, of craft breweries, small scale breweries. And it's uh, you know things look very different if you're a punter than than if you're a than if you're someone who supports the movement. Really, yeah, how how do you sort of justify that in your head when you're giving advice that might end up harming small brewers or reducing <laughs> choice for consumers? It must be. Because, I mean, I do consultancy as well, um, not generally with big guys, but occasionally you're sat there giving advice that you know will hurt somebody else. Yeah, I think um, it's it's an issue. I mean, I, some of the projects I work on would be, I would feel bad about it if I thought they were going to go anywhere. 
and, <laughs> right. and often I'm like, right, we're we're gonna we're gonna launch a actually no one no one has said this to me to be fair, but you know we're gonna launch a craft brand that's gonna destroy craft beer. Um, it's like, well, no, you're not because uh, you know people people will people what, what people used to say to me twenty years ago was, how do we do a stellar artois? Uh, and I say to them, I used to say to them. Uh, you you launch a brand into the market that nobody wants. Uh, you don't change it. You don't do anything to it. You accept twenty years of of minimal sales, and then wait for a new generation to come along who think that's always been there. It's always been consistent. It's never changed. I can probably trust that brand. It's more authentic than the others. And they went, well, we can't do that. We need to bring it to market to in eighteen months. And a similar conversation is now is like, how do we right? How do we launch a craft beer that's going to kill all the small craft beer guys? And I say, really easy. All you do, you let your brewer do whatever he wants. Uh, and you don't put it through any market research. You don't put it through your normal gate system of approvals. And you just launch it onto the market as soon as it's brewed it and as soon as the brewer's happy with it. And they go, well, we can't do that. And I say, well, we can't launch a craft beer then. <laughs> <laughs> I get paid for that, so I'm fine. And it's, it sounds dismissive, but that is what is happening at 2,500 breweries around the UK. Yeah, and I was just the example when I, when I was working with um, – Stuart Ross, I wasn't working with him. I was drinking and getting pissed with him. Um, <laughs> before he, it's a fine line sometimes. Before, before it was poached to start up Magic Rock, he brewed in a brewery at the Hillsborough Hotel in Sheffield. He had a, he had a built brewery that he'd built himself out of junk in the basement. And this is why Magic Rock beers are so good. It's like what Stuart did when he got some proper gear uh, was, was amazing. Um, and... Uh, and he was walking around Sainsbury's, and there was a these uh, boxes full of chilies uh, reduced to clear because they because they come towards the end of their their usefulness. And so on the spot, he just went, "I'm going to make a chili porter." And so he bought these massive boxes of chilies and brewed a chili porter the following morning, and it was gorgeous. Now, if I was to do a a new product development workshop with a multinational brewer, and we said, "Shall we do a chili porter?" That would take two years to bring to market, uh, by which time, if there had been a, a, a market for, you know, if, if, I, if, if I'd done the research and said, you want to be launching a chili porter, that research would be two years out of date by the time they actually got it to market. So this is what I'm talking about when I say that small brewers have got the advantage these days. This is why I think it's not, I mean, this conversation has kind of receded a little bit now, but but when when a big corporation buys a beloved craft brand, and the first instinct is people going, well, they're, they're going to they're bugger up the beers now. They're going to make it corporate. They're going to they're going to ruin what was special about it. I don't think that is the default. That can still happen, and I can think of one example in particular where it definitely has happened. Uh, but it's not the default position now because the reason they're buying those breweries is that they can't uh, do, they can't replicate what the brewer has done. So it's just simpler to to pay them over the odds for what it costs to buy the brewery. And uh, and say right, we don't know how you do it. We don't know what you're doing. Carry on doing whatever it is you do that we don't understand, and we'll just give you some more fermenting vessels and scale up production, uh, and give you an aggressive, uh, nasty sales force to get your uh, product into more places. It, it's interesting, also the effect that craft beer has had in. I think it has stopped people being able to do what you said with that happened with Stella. Twenty years of unremarkable sales, and then suddenly it's a retro brand. Yeah. You've seen things like Hofmeister try to come through doing that. Perhaps Blue Blue Ribbon nearly had another moment. Red Stripe nearly had another moment. But I, is it harder now to to break through and make your brand sort of all, all, authentic when there are act, there is actual authenticity now? Well, there's so much noise now. Uh, so there's so many more, there's so many more brewers and uh, brands around, and at the same time, the the, the channels through which you communicate uh, have gone apeshit. So, in the eighties, um, when I was getting into my beer ads, my TV ads. Sorry, I'm just pouring myself another beer here. Of course. Um, uh, in the eighties, when I was getting into my beer ads, there were two commercial channels on everyone's television. Coronation Street would get twenty million viewers. And they said to break a Coronation Street, most of the most of the country was watching. So you dropped a, a beer ad in there, and anybody you wanted to see saw it. I mean, if you think about good TV ads these days, you think about the John Lewis ads, which are the only TV ads that anyone really talks about these days. It's all about online. You know, people. It's it's about making the ads so good that people talk about it on social media and they go to YouTube to watch the ad. Um, there's just no point advertising on TV anymore, really, because no one's going to see it. Um, so, so the 
the landscape's changed completely. And if and if you've got that diverse, fractured audience, uh, it's so much harder to to reach and to get them to pay attention to you. And you've got a thousand times more people trying to do it. After the, after we you know, so we, we got those tighter regulations at the same time as this huge fragmentation in the channels and the sort of dissolving of the mass audience. What all the big brewers did was they put all that budget into price discounting in supermarkets. Um, and so in in the late 90s, when I was doing focus groups with drinkers, say, for example, uh, you'd get a bunch of lads and they were either bud drinkers or they were stellar drinkers and never the twain shall meet. It was like a tribal thing. You know, it was uh, Crips versus Bloods. Um, and 10 years later, they were like, well, the same lads would be, well, I buy anything, whatever, whatever's on the best offer at the supermarket. You know, Foster's, Heineken, Stella, they're all the same. Uh, which one's got the best deal this week in the supermarket? So so they actually, the industry, the big beer industry, itself deliberately destroyed all that brand loyalty that they'd spent 30 years building up. It was basically the biggest ha- act of self-harm that any industry has ever seen from a marketing point of view. So no one's loyal to those brands anymore. I mean, people, people still drink them and buy them. But they buy them just on price. They're commoditized um, and, and took all the kind of meaning out of what these brands are and what, what they had. And I do, I do think that that's one of the – that kind of opened the door for craft to come in um, because uh, people were no longer shop brand loyal, brand specific. So that meant they were much more likely to, to try something they'd never heard of before. So you think the marketing budget's gone into discounting rather than content totally. production? Totally. And interestingly, uh, Guinness have probably been the last to abandon that traditional model of beautifully made, story-led, um, funny adverts. Well, if you ask me as a marketing professional rather than a dr- beer drinker, uh, Guinness is by far my favourite beer brand at the moment. I just think they're they're doing it absolutely right. And the, the, I, I can think of three decent beer TV ads this century – and two of them are Guinness ads. Which were they? Um, do you remember the? Oh, what's it called? What's it called? The the one with the guys in, um, is it? Yeah, the the guys in Africa who were like really poor, but they dress up in these amazing costumes and go dancing. The old oh, of guy. course, yeah. Oh, I, I can't just, remember the name of them. Yeah, Sappers. That's where it is. Uh, and that's just a glorious piece of film. It really, really is. And the other one is with. Uh, guys in wheelchairs playing basketball, um, crashing over and all sorts of stuff. And then at the end of the basketball game, all of them, apart from one guy, get up and walk away and say, right, see you next week, mate. And so they've all been playing basketball in wheelchairs because their mate is in a wheelchair, um, which just is the most amazing thing. And then it, they're both kind of executions on this strap line of made of more, which is just a brilliant, brilliant positioning for a brand like Guinness. I think, I think they're... They've been through their troubles and they're not out of the woods, but I, I think they they really get it. Oh, I love that stuff. Been drinking it for years. Drinking it for years. Drinking it for years. Drinking it for years. You know, I, I moved, they recently decided to add more hops to it. To it. Hops to it. You know, I, I moved, they recently decided to add more hops to it. To it. Hops to it. Um, so let's move on to, to the other side of what you do, Pete. So you were you were working for for this um, advertising agency, uh, doing beautiful marketing for shit beer. When did you start wanting to get involved in shit marketing for great beer? <laughs> uh, I mean, it, it, one, one led it led directly out of what I was doing. So I've, I've mentioned quite a few times the focus groups and stuff, and it was that really. It was. Uh, you know, all, all the stuff I had to do, all, understanding the psychology of beer drinkers. Um, and and I, I enjoyed it. This may come as a shock, but I enjoyed it a lot more than doing the same thing on financial services or newspapers or or anything like that. Um, I just thought it was fascinating. And the, like I said, the brand loyalty at that time was absolutely astonishing. I'd never seen anything like it uh, apart from maybe people's football teams. Um, so, so I'd never seen the kind of passion expressed over choice of beer in, in any other product. And so I started thinking, well, why, why is this? Why does beer have this hold over people's imaginations like this? Why are people so, so loyal to it? So I went looking for a book about the social and cultural history of beer. 
And I found one in the States that was brilliant in terms of a history of beer from a marketing perspective in the States. And no one had written one in the UK. So I was going, I can't believe no one's written this book. This is just stupid. And I woke up one morning and went, excellent, I'll write it. And and that was Man Walks Into a Pub. Uh, and Man Walks Into a Pub was going to be a chapter on each one of these classic campaigns uh, and how it had helped shape uh, culture and stuff um, with a quick introduction on the history of beer. And then the history of beer turned into two chapters and then three chapters and by the time I finished the book, it was a book on the history of beer with one chapter on beer advertising. <laughs> yeah, that is how I read it as well. I, you were describing that at the start. I was like, that's not the book I remember. <laughs> uh, and that was it. The book came out and suddenly I realised there was a whole kind of beer writing world. And uh, so I decided to, when Man Walks, actually the, day, the week Man Walks Into a Pub came out, my mate who I used to work on Stella with, um, by this time I was uh, doing the same, it was kind of marketing manager at MTV, and he got us backstage camping at Glastonbury 2003. And so I'm camping at backstage at Glastonbury, and uh, uh, the only celebrity I saw was Keith out of the office, the big guy out of the office, <laughs> camping near us. Um, and they had three copies of The Guardian, and my, my publicist had said, oh, I think you might be being reviewed in The Guardian this weekend. And it, it came out as a trade paperback first edition. So I looked at the paperback reviews in the Guardian review section. It wasn't there. I thought, oh, well, never mind, you know. And so I started reading the review section from the beginning, and I had the full, a full-page review, glowing review of Man Walks Into a Pub on page five of the Guardian. And I thought, I'm sitting at Glastonbury reading a full-page glowing review of my first book. Uh, and I went into work the following week. They were asking for voluntary redundancies. And I went, yep. That's me. I'm quitting advertising. I'm going to be around. And they went, we didn't mean you. <laughs> I went, oh, shit, mate, I'm off. Um, and, and so I, I, did, I, I did freelance advertising for quite a bit of time, but uh, um, I, I'd, I'd always wanted to be a writer since the age of nine. And I, I never thought I was going to be a beer writer, but that book came out. And getting that review just made me realize that all the kind of jockeying for position and promotion and power games and advertising, I totally wasn't interested in any of it. I wanted to write and I'd, and I'd found the thing I could write about. So, uh, so that was it. What was the demand like back then? Because you say like, so I wrote the book, surely who, who was commissioning a book about the history of beer? Well, <laughs> uh, I, I always say you're not a writer, certainly you're not a writer of books until you've collected a, uh, a folder full of at least 13 rejection letters from publishers. So I think I got to about 20. Um, but at the time, there were all these um, narrative nonfiction books. Do you, have you seen a book called The History of Cod? <laughs> no. Seriously, I know it sounds daft, but this guy, Mark Kolansky, wrote The History of Cod. And, and I think it, was, it seemed like such a weird subject, but the whole point that he did was he he used cod to tell the story of how the Viking fishing fleets probably discovered North America centuries before Columbus. Uh, he explored Basque culture uh, and how Basque cod fishing uh, works. And, and he used cod as basically a, a vehicle to write an incredible story about different groups of people around the world. So it was about the people. And it won so many prizes. It was a massive bestseller. And off the back of that, there was the history of uh, the English lawn, the history of bold sweets, the history of the colour purple. And, excuse me. <laughs> and and I, couldn't, I couldn't believe that no one had done beer. So so my book, I lifted the approach for the history of cod and did one about beer and got all my rejections. And then at Pan Macmillan, there was an editor who I later found out had been thinking exactly the same thing as me. Um, he said, "Why isn't well, it's like well, we've done every subject we can think of? No one's done beer yet." And he wanted to commission one on beer, and my proposal landed on his desk that morning, and that was it. It was pure, pure luck. It was pure chance. It usually is when something like that happens. <laughs> and what was the the state of beer writing back in two thousand and three? <laughs> it was. Um, uh, I can tell you what I thought it was. Uh, I've I've since been proved. I've since discovered I was wrong, <laughs> uh, to some extent. But uh, you know, I was. Uh, I, <clears throat> excuse me, hang on. <clears throat> um, at the time, I, I, you know, gathered as much beer writing as I could find, uh, and most of it was basically Michael Jackson or Roger Protz. 
And there was this format of book, uh, the World Encyclopedia of Beer, uh, Beers Around the World, Beers of the World. And they would all have a chapter on, an introduction chapter on why beer is so great, uh, a brief potted history of beer, uh, a history, a, a description of how beer is made. And then it'd be like, right, these are the best beers in uh, each country as you go around the world. And everybody was just kind of Xeroxing that format. And it's like, what's the point of this? And beer writing in Britain was uh, lager is shit, camera saved the world, real ale is the only beer you need to drink the end. And and so I was quite iconoclastic coming in, writing about mainstream lager. Uh, I was deliberately aggressive about it. I deliberately went in right into camera's face and wound them up to the point that we almost got into a legal tussle about it. Um uh, the first first edition of Man Walks Into a Pub was quite scathing about some of the beer writers. Um, and then, of course, as I get into the industry, I find out I've been slagging off some really nice people <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and felt really bad about it. And also, my biggest mistake was I dismissed Michael Jackson's writing along with everybody else. I thought he was doing this same Me Too kind of stuff without actually reading his books properly and realising what a fucking brilliant writer he was. Uh, apart from apart from the fact that he did everything first before anyone else did, uh, the quality of writing still makes me jealous today. Really, yeah. I recently wrote a piece on on the formation of of beer language, in which I reread uh, the two Michael Jackson books I have, and it's it's lyrical. It's um, he he says stuff about beer that I have never even considered, and he was doing it twenty years ago, and we seem to have forgotten a little bit. Um, how beautiful prose about beer can be, I think. Uh, yes, because he, he relates it to life. That's the point, I think. And that's what I that's what I try to do. It's what I aspire to doing. Um but you he makes you think he's he makes you think he'd be a great person to have a beer with. He he doesn't try to I mean he's he's incredibly knowledgeable, but he doesn't try to shove his knowledge in your face. Uh, he, he tries to be avuncular uh, and gentle um, so, so you're learning stuff. He's very, very authoritative, um, but he, but he's just great company on the page. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It does feel like you're on a journey with him almost. Um, it's not somebody sort of preaching to the choir. Totally. Um, yeah. So, uh, alongside the beer writing, what what kind of marketing uh, was was going on with these the beers that would have been around in 2003? So back then. There would have been meantime just about Thornbridge literally starting, um, and obviously lots of breweries in America. Were you aware of any sort of attempts at, at, at marketing a PR? Um, not, um, not at the time. I was, I was still very much in my head. I was still very much lager boy, and I'd always been interested in what we what we later started calling craft beer. There was a there was a, a brewery called Pete's Wicked Ale. Um, a very early American craft beer that that was on sale in odd bins, and I always used to buy some of that when I went in for a bottle of wine. Um, but it, it was it was invisible to me. I mean, you had, you had this kind of you had the big campaigns from the Lager Boys followed by um, uh, the price discounting, and then you had the real ale brands, which didn't really have budget and just presented them almost an anti marketing kind of image with. Uh, you know, no appeal whatsoever to a kind of a mainstream audience. Um, I think people bought those brands in spite of the marketing rather than anything else. Um, and then I think it all changed about five years after that with, with social media. In in terms of the drinkers do, sort of started to do the advertising themselves or the breweries seizing it? Because I'm not aware of any real, real ale brands that do social media particularly well. No, it, 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 I think it, it, when when you got the new brand of, sort of self-defined craft brewers coming through. Um, so what you got, you know, the SEBA the, the regulations, uh, they got the beard, progressive beard routine in 2001. And you can track from that point um, a huge growth in the number of breweries. Uh, but I remember at the time as I was getting into beer properly from a product perspective rather than just a cultural perspective, you'd get and I'd go down to Uto Beer and they'd say, right, we've just got a new range of beers in from this new brewery that's just opened up. Do you want to help us taste them and see if we should, should be stocking them? And you'd get a range of six or seven beers and they would all be between 3.8% and 4.2%. They'd all be traditional British beer styles. And so you've got lots of brewers all making the same beer. And we're back to that these days, just with a different style. Um, 
but around when social media came around, people started talking about beers and the influence of America suddenly became very, very easy and accessible. And this growing number of brewers started experimenting with styles. I remember drinking a, a very early Thornbridge beer in 2005, which I found on a visit to the Peak District, and jumping up out of my chair going, this has got those American hops in that I've just heard about. <laughs> and I hadn't tasted a beer in Britain like that ever before. Uh, I've since found out there were some, uh, but there was pretty small and pretty thin on the ground. And so they get the American influence in, and social media starts to build its own scene. At, at the time, beer was completely uh, excluded from mainstream media. Um, you know, it still not doesn't get great representation. But the first generation of beer bloggers and uh, brewers getting Twitter accounts from about 2009 onwards, it created what we've now got as the as the craft beer bubble. Uh, and from that you start to get this this new wave of marketing. Um, uh, I, I think most big beer brands, sorry, most, I think most good craft beer brands from a marketing perspective and a product perspective have built their brand on the back of a mix of um, social media and horrible word that we use in the, in the business, experiential. Um, and once social media went mobile, once you get the smartphone in around 2009, 2010, you get people in pubs going, hey, guys, I'm in this pub and the brewer from so-and-so's in here. They've done a tap takeover. Get yourselves down here. Oh, and here's some photos of it happening that I can share on social media. We completely take this for granted now. And that is on, that, that way of life that impacts everything that we do now is only 10 or 11 years old. It's almost impossible to remember what it was like before then. Um, and I think people who've grown up with that and can't remember much different before it have an instinctive concept of brand marketing and they would never call it brand marketing to them it's not but uh if you kind of curate your tweets carefully if you if you edit them carefully if you're consistent with what you're tweeting about or instagramming about then you're doing brand marketing basically mm. it's interesting i think a lot of beer geeks would try to claim that they see beyond marketing beyond branding and and understand what's in what's good by judging the liquid and you look at um you know when beavertown gamma ray came out there were 10 other beers that were just as good so why did beavertown um have the success that it did and you know it comes down to nick dwyer and what he was putting on the cans and to um the people running the social media at the time i think and we're, we're not immune to these marketing attempts it's just they've shifted from tv to social i totally agree and uh, i i I may be wrong about this, uh, and I know there are people who disagree with me, but I think that's precisely the reason for the difference between the outcry that greet, greeted Beavertown selling 49% to Heineken, and a few months later, Forpio was selling 100% to Lion. Um, I, I think they're comparable beers. I, I sort of rate them equally. Uh, I think they're both similar styles. And Beavertown was like rending of garments, and, you know, it was horrible. And for pure, uh, I, I did a check when I was writing about this, um, and I, I think there's a hashtag like Beavertown Sellout or whatever, and it was like you know tens of thousands of tweets using this hashtag, and I searched for for pure sellout, and there was one. <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean that's a measure of of goodwill of of brand equity, isn't it? Right there, it really is. Beavertown was a massive brand. Um, it had built its brand differently than mainstream. It had built its brand by breaking all the rules about good branding. It's not supposed to work. Um, but you know it's a good – there's a test we used to do where you would take the company name off a logo and the shape of the logo. It's like, can you, do you know what these are? And it's like, yeah, there's the Nike swoosh. There's a Stella Artois coat of arms. There's the, there's the Coke bottle. I could name all those brands. And if you saw a Nick Dwyer drawing on the side of a building or the side of a van with no text whatsoever, craft, any craft beer drink would say, oh, that's Beavertown. It's an astonishingly good brand. So you started a couple of years ago the, 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 the Craft Beer Marketing Awards. Well, the Beer Marketing Awards, yeah. Oh, the Beer Marketing Awards, sorry. Put, put the C word in front of it. Um, <laughs> what, what was the impetus for that? Was, was that trying to raise the standards or was that to celebrate what was being done or... or- it was a lot of what we've been talking about. Um, if you're in the – so if you, if you think about the beer industry, there's a lot of um, brewing awards, uh, you know, as there should be, to celebrate the quality of the beer. Um, on the adverti- In the advertising industry, there's lots of marketing awards. 
uh, and no one had done both of them. And what I'm talking about, about the shift from big brand marketing to this small, nimble, adaptive marketing that's multimedia and doesn't necessarily need a great budget, we thought that was a really exciting time. If you tried to start the Beer Marketing Awards in 2000, it would have been whoever had made the best TV ad and that would be it. But what we had in the what we had in the Beer Marketing Awards was, I distinctly remember the second year, um, Purity had spent 50 quid on sponsoring a bike race and uh, Heineken had spent 10 million uh, on Euro, either Euros or the Olympics. Um, and they were the two finalists up against each other because it's about the quality of the thinking, the quality of the idea that counts. And Heineken eventually won because they didn't just throw, they did throw money at it, but they didn't just throw money at it. They did do some nice activations, but, but they were being pushed to the, to the wire by a 50 quid campaign from purity. And so we thought it was a great time to celebrate creativity in, in, uh, in the beer industry. And because both Heineken and purity could enter, we thought it's the only awards ceremony in the industry that applies to everybody. You know, the first year we had Budweiser, Camden, Purity, you know, tiny brewers all all competing for the same awards. And so we thought it was the only awards ceremony that anybody in the industry could come to. So I mean, there was a genuine altruistic motive there. And also, you know, all the kind of horrors that you got, pump, pump clip parade and stuff like that. We wanted people to see that you could do great marketing without a massive budget and stop doing such terrible marketing um that was giving beer a bad name um and also we thought we'd make some money about out of it and that's the only thing we were wrong about basically <laughs> so it, it, the awards happened last year right are they happening this year uh they're not uh they're on indefinite hiatus um so i launched the awards with uh two partners um we've done five editions of it now and we haven't made a penny out of it. We've yeah, we, we've broken even. Um, we've we've paid our running costs, but we haven't ever taken any salary out of it or for our time. And um, you know, I, I think there's a lot of people in this industry who do projects because they think they need to be done, and they're happy to do them for a while. And uh, my two partners now are no longer in the industry anymore, so they're understandably not um, not interested in carrying on. Uh, we tried to sell it as a going concern, but uh, that hasn't worked out. So it may return next year in some shape or form. Um, I am in conversations with people about it, but uh, it's uh, it's not happening for a, for a little while. So you recently wrote your first book that was outside of the beer industry, uh, with the, the brilliant name of Pie Fidelity. Um, that didn't get you such a glowing review in The Guardian, <laughs> uh, <laughs> if I remember correctly. Oh, my um, God, that was a psychopathic character assassination it was somebody had something to get off their chest didn't they i've honestly been asked whether I, i've been asked many times whether i have slept with that guy's wife or run over his dog because it was the venom in it was out of all proportion to a book about fish and chips and pork pies basically hmm. but it was um now that i've heard what the the origins of mammals into a pub was supposed to be it it feels like you did the same thing with food so you you took something um, that is kind of counter to what people in this country believe um, and kind of championed it. So it wasn't macro lager. It was uh, our slightly frowned upon food, traditional yeah, cuisine. It's exactly the same. It was exactly the same approach. Uh, it's a very similar book. It's much better written uh, than Man Walks Into a Pub because um, I've had quite a lot of practice now. Uh, but and it was it actually grew out of it actually grew out of looking at our attitudes to beer um when i was working on lager um the the whole point the reason the stellar ads were like they were was oh well um yeah, i'm only going to drink beer if it comes from another country you know uh, i wouldn't drink a british beer you know we're talking about one of the greatest brewing nations on the planet um so oh yeah well we only make real ale and that's that's all shit you know i want to drink a lager and lager's got to be made in continental europe or australia or somewhere i want to drink a british lager because that's going to be shit as well and i thought why you know if you talk to anyone else around the world british beer is just like amazing and we're the only country in the world that doesn't rate british beer we're also the only country in the world that doesn't rate our own beer um you know, if you go to speak to someone in Greece, they're going to say, well, Mythos is a fantastic beer. If you go to America, they're going to say Bud is a fantastic beer. Uh, not one of the 
brands in the British top 10 beer brands is, is, is a British brand. Carling's Canadian. And um, I thought, well, that's just strange. And so I've been living with that for, for years and then realised that our attitudes to food are exactly the same. Oh, British cuisine is shit. You know, British food is shit. And people say, well, no, food in Britain's really good now. What they mean is we've got access to all these amazing different cuisines from around the world and we're really cosmopolitan and, and uh, you know, you can get Vietnamese food and Korean food and things like that. And I'm like, yeah, but what about traditional British food? Oh, yeah, that's terrible. And it's so not. You know, there's this whole um, – we, we have – the best climate for growing uh, livestock and a lot of produce uh, in the world. Uh, you know, we, we, we grow the best apples in the world. We have the best apple-growing terroir in the world, and no one knows that. Uh, if you think of beef, you probably think of you know, the, the best state you could ever have. You probably think of Argentina uh, and all those kind of South American. All those herds uh, are, are, are British, uh, descended from British cows, British, British livestock, and no one knows this. And it, it was an experiment to see if I could be proud and passionate about something Britain does well in the age of Brexit. Yeah, uh, it makes it tough, doesn't it? <laughs> you know, while being a passionate Remainer myself, if I could find a way to be patriotic without sounding like uh, Nigel Farage, basically. And food was the medium. <laughs> um, so you must have got involved slightly in the food uh, the food scene as well as, as, yes. as part of that. How does that compare to the, the, the beer sphere? Oh, <laughs> I was just trying to think about who might hear this. Um, so the first, the first thing I'll say is that the beer marketing—sorry, not the beer marketing awards—the uh, the Fortnum and Mason Food and Drink Awards. If you think beer writers can put it away, we are left standing by the wider audience, the wider universe of food and drink writers. They cane it like motherfuckers. You've, I've never seen drinking. Like I've seen at the Fortnum Mace out there, Fortnum It's just as cliquey as we are. It's just as trend driven as as we are. Um, you know, if we're all talking about New England IPA, uh, there's an equivalent in the food world, which might be, um, you know, I, uh, oh no, what, what was it recently? So it's kind of Eastern European cooking. You know, so it's, it's like what cuisine haven't we done yet, and and that kind of. Um, so it's. <laughs> Quite quite bitchy. Um, it, it's it's really interesting because I was uh, I was I was welcomed into this broader food and drink world as like oh here's Pete the beer and cider guy oh it's great that we've got a beer and cider guy in and I definitely put some noses out of joint by saying oh hey now I've written a book about food as well and it's like oh <laughs> no <laughs> I'm twenty with a beer guy <laughs> we're not sure we're not sure, sure, sure you but we want you on our turf now yeah talk but don't compete please yes. <laughs> Interesting. Well, it's good to know that uh, we're not the only uh, super cliquey, hyper hypey uh, food and drink scene out there. That's reassuring. And none of us are as bad as the travel writers, by the way. <laughs> Is that right? <laughs> well, they're having a torrid time right now. So there we go. It's karma. I drove over to the Sonic Drive-In. Ordered a jalapeno burger. Wash it down with beer, spears, beer, spears, beer, beer, spears, beer, 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 that was Pete Brown talking about advertising and books and uh, his pretty interesting career. He's been through, you know, the whole gamut, the whole revolution of the craft beer uh, movement, and no. seen basically his previous love of advertising just die on its ass, essentially. Um, but it was interesting to talk about how the the budgets are going into discounts, but there's lots of free guerrilla marketing being done by these beer, um, these new beer brands, people like Beaver Town who have got fantastic brands, um, but also scarcity marketing, which I think is probably the dominant force in the guys doing really well at the moment. Yeah, I mean, I just find it mad that these budgets that were so big of these huge ad campaigns from these big, big breweries now just goes into making it as cheap as possible. 
Um, and it really is the sign of where beer lost its way because there is no brand loyalty in big beer, really. Um, not in the same way there is for like clothing brands and lots of other sort of commodities. Um, people don't really care if they go to Tesco's when they're picking their beer, they just want the cheapest one. So that was obviously the big sea change when there was more stricter advertising laws. So all these big breweries just decided, fuck it, we'll just make it as cheap as we can. Um, yeah. And exactly. that's why craft, craft beer has really moved it forward uh, and trying to make it a bit more interesting uh, with their sort of guerrilla campaigns using social and um, scarcity to, to do that. Yeah, so so Guinness is still doing it very well. Peroni, they've copied Stella Artois, but they've continued to do it pretty well. Estrella have started doing quite cinematic, epic adverts with um, is it Peter Dinklage, who's from um, uh, from Game of Thrones and some other things. There's some feature-length uh, adverts there. But otherwise, nobody's doing it. So who, who are the guys doing marketing well, do you think, at the moment? I mean, from the big guys or the small guys, I think from from the big guys, you are right, and Pete has probably been involved in this, but I just think what Guinness do is so good. <laughs> I mean, bias being Irish and all that, but I think their advertising has always been so strong. Uh, and how they've created a brand within the sort of, within Stout, like they have completely taken that market. Um, they go down a nostalgic route. They go down... They sponsor the right events. They've just done a very, very good job in maintaining their market share. And what about small guys? Small guys. I mean, it's just so different, isn't it? What the, the small guys are doing. They're having to use social media and all these type of things to, to push their brands. People like Pilot are absolutely smashing it on Twitter. Like, don't take it seriously. There's a lot of people on Twitter who do sort of keyboard warriors that maybe do take it all a bit too seriously for an online presence and they're just they've, they've done the exact opposite and i love it yeah i did uh, a podcast with um the guy who who runs the pilot account for good beer hunting and we had a long conversation about what opportunities would have still been there for him if it weren't for the twitter account and he was very open in going okay i interviewed him at the london craft beer festival and he said i don't think i'd be here if it weren't for the twitter account like that, that's the main reason they have such a, a vocal presence in the beer industry. Um, I think there's lots of breweries that are doing marketing very, very well, but um, again, they're doing it in a slightly guerrilla way. They're sort of, um, I guess you could call it greenwashing, but using sustainability, using independence as a form of marketing. So Purity, who make pretty decent beer, um, have have built their entire brand off of being, and they're borderline carbon neutral. They only take I think it's two and a half pints to brew a pint of beer which is around about five times less than your average brewery and stuff like this uh, coupled with them being in their local football uh, Aston Villa I think uh, they do all the beer in Aston Villa Beavertown doing it at um, Tottenham Hotspurs you've got Magic Rock at Huddersfield and these these ways of reaching people seem to be much more effective than the, the big content led stuff and yeah. then you do the free stuff to talk about the things you're doing i think actually harvey's are one of the first breweries of the country to uh be on every bar in a football stadium at uh brighton and hove so is that they're right the, they're the old school ones who are, who are leading the charge there that is amazing that's almost worth I've, i <laughs> i i could be a brighton player but i'd like to go to their stadium now yeah smash a couple of bests it doesn't get much better yeah. than that <laughs> Um, um, yeah, so I mean, I am always fascinated by beer marketing because we all think in the craft beer industry that we are totally focused on the quality, but we're not. We're, we're all, myself included, Rob included, swayed by branding. And if you look at the biggest brands in the UK, none of them have bad branding. And while that might be because they're paying equal attention to their branding and their liquid, it also kind of implies that these most famous brands are top of our list because of the way they look. So it's always worth being critical, self-critical to try and separate the image of a brand from its actual quality of its liquid, which we we should be doing if we're beer lovers. Yeah, I mean, the branding is important. And if you're going to drink a beer once, quite often the reason you pick that beer is because of how it looks, because you've got not a lot else to base it on. 
particularly if you're in like a, a busy pub or a, a bottle shop and you're just browsing the shelves. So something needs to stand out. And um, that's testament to Nick's work, as uh, you guys discussed um, from Beaver Town. Like that was a, a loud can. Those colours really popped out of the fridge and it was intriguing. But the reason they did so well is because then the liquid was in it to back it up. And I think that's what all the breweries need to remember when they're they're creating these uh, these beers and these designs that it's not just uh, it's not just all style. You do need the liquid as well. Yeah, and hopefully the drinkers will remember that too. Um, guys, we'd love to hear your thoughts uh, on what Pete Brown had to say. Uh, you can get us at Beer Channel uh, uh, on Twitter, at Craft Beer Channel on Instagram, and obviously on YouTube at youtube.com slash the Craft Beer Channel. Please do support our Patreon. That supports everything we're doing. It's ever more important now because YouTube advertising's down, sponsor content is down, and everybody's loving life. So if you do have some money to spare, do join our Patreon. Otherwise, we'll see you next month for another bubble, and we'll see you on next on next Friday. We'll see you next Friday with another Friday 5pm with my man Brad. Let's talk about beer, Johnny. Let's talk about AVB. Let's talk about Imperial Stouts and Imbib buyouts of Wicked Weed. Let's talk about beer. Let's talk about beer. Let's talk about beer. Let's talk about beer. Let's talk about beer.